Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Snapshot, episode 58. I'm Brendan Patrick, joined by Marvel Snap Phenom and Rank 1 player, Tori Kun. Not Cam this time. I saw you saying hi. Tori, welcome. I, no, I did I did I, this motion. <laughs> yeah. I did well, this. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Um, just, I want to set a foundation for the people listening who might not be aware of you. Can you give us a quick background on your experience in card games in general and Marvel Snap specifically? Yeah, um, actually, like, I'm Torikun. Um, I'm not someone who I would describe as a card gamer specifically. I'd call myself a lifelong gamer. I love video games. I've been playing video games since very young, but not card games specifically. I don't, like, chase the newest trading card game. So, like, I'm, like, different from a lot of the crowd that plays Snap. I, I just picked it up, like, mm -hmm. pretty much on a whim because... I was lucky enough to catch the Philippines open beta when it launched. And I've been playing this basically since uh, June of 2022. I've been able to just coast and pretty much stay near the top of the game um, since the game released. Uh, and I've done quite a lot of things um, throughout my stay here. Uh, in terms of pre experience with previous card games, I've dabbled in uh, a bit of Hearthstone. Mm -hmm. Completely free to play, but I was... Um, multiple time legend but i never had the same level of competitive success in hearthstone that i ended up having in snap uh and i can attribute that to a lot of reasons but mostly due to the fact that i've never gotten as involved with the community as i have with snap and mm. just like interacting with you guys and podcast meet, getting to meet km when i went when he went to hong kong there, there's a lot of fun experiences i've had for the first time when i was uh, playing snap and playing competitively as well mm -hmm. yeah that's actually very it's very unusual um to you know meet someone who's at the top of a game in any sort of tcg or strategy game probably in general where this is their first game of that genre i know you said you had a little bit of experience with hearthstone but you know usually players are coming from backgrounds of you know deep competitive experience before they hit something like rank one in marvel snap which is very something very very hard to attain what I just have to ask, because it's just at the forefront of my mind. I had it as a later question in the podcast, but what does your play structure look like? Like, how much do you actually play the game to be able to achieve rank one on ladder and maintain that? Like, is it as much as I would think? Because for me, I'm thinking, oh, this guy must be grinding all day, every day. Definitely not. Um, like, I play, um, a like, I'd say a healthy amount. Like, even... Um, in the past, I used to play a lot more and I used to compete a lot more. Um, mm -hmm. That was like when I um, was still um, kind of jobless. I picked up a job like around halfway through um, the last year in 2013. And that like ate up into my competitive time a bit. I've had less free time to just mind to just grind. But there are days when I would play um, around 10 games of ladder. There are days when I'd play 100 games of ladder. It it really depends on like how well you're feeling, how well you're doing. You you want to make sure that you're in your best shape possible. But in general, I don't I don't play this game a lot. Like if you give me a number, my, if my, give me a number. My, uh, my season pass level right now is like seventy nine. It's not in the eighties yet. And I know a lot of content creators, streamers. They're like in the nineties, the hundreds already. So maybe that should give you a bit of a, a sort of ballpark estimate of how much I play, a, a, how much less I play relative to some other people. But mm -hmm. I do play a lot. 
And when I do play, I guess I ladder quite efficiently because I've been this season has been really great for me mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of just the um how well I've been able to just streak. I've been, it's a really hot season for me. Yeah. So for context here, aligned. my season pass level is like sixty four right now. Just some context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't even I think mine's like it's like fifties or something. Um so like I said, with people usually coming from TCG backgrounds, it has to do with them you know, oftentimes being interested in card game mechanics specifically. Like one thing about TCGs evokes a passion in them that they share across multiple games. Since you Marvel Snap is your first game, it's the first game you've really dove into in terms of like a TCG game. What about Marvel Snap is different from other card games? And what, what about Marvel Snap stands out to you as a player that has hooked you different than other card games like Hearthstone? So I saw Marvel Snap from um, Trump SC's uh, early Snap content. Shoutouts to him. And immediately, uh, what I noticed was the backgammon doubling cube mechanic, the Snap mechanic, as <laughs> the the titular title of the game represents. It's when when I played a lot of Hearthstone. Um, I guess one of the things that held me back um, from like really grinding to the top, like. For context here, I was uh, a free-to-play player. I played from from around Classic all the way up until around Whispers of Old Gods. And I played up until I was like hitting Legend almost every season. And I was like doing so with like multiple classes. I was like infinite in Arena, completely free-to-play. But there was a point where I just couldn't really keep up with the bleeding edge of the meta because I wasn't putting in money to get packs to keep up. And eventually I got I got tired of it. Also, like, uh, the fact that the game sometimes would go long. I, I wouldn't really grind for very long sessions. And I enjoyed, like, Control Warrior a lot in Hearthstone, in Hearthstone. And you get a lot of these long grinding games where just by the nature of it, you get stuck in a game where you're just, like, 5% to win, but you have to keep at it. And it just feels it's the most miserable thing ever, just sticking in it. And, like, snaps fast games. And the way they've managed to make losing a skill mm-hmm. just really drew me in and you can talk about it later but like i think cube management and like just snapping and retreating has become like my trademark skill like more so than um making the most accurate plays or reads in in this game mm. which just allowed me to stand apart in terms of snapping uh specifically would you categorize yourself as a more aggressive snapper more passive or somewhere in the middle it's all relative because I like to think of myself as like uh, I'm I'm more aggressive compared to a lot of people, but like I'm not like for example Lambie aggressive, <laughs> and I'll, yeah. I'm like I'll like hang back um, depending on the matchup, but um, I'm not afraid to snap for for sure. Yeah, um, Tori, Tori's I, I've watched him play enough that I can conceivably say that he is probably the right amount of aggressive. Like yeah. controlled aggression is the name of the game. He's the right amount of it. Yeah, and, and like, it, it's funny because like, I I don't have any other um, betting game experience. Like, I I like dab, I watch a bit of poker content, and like most of my strategy really boils down to like tight, aggressive, consistent play, and like you you just reread that off of something on your basic poker website. You snap when you're good. You you just hold and just stick around when you're bad, and oftentimes that's just enough. It's 
And the margins come from being able to um, evaluate the game state, the game board, and yeah, it comes with experience as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the additional layer of snapping as a strategy sort of axis for Marvel Snap is it's such a fascinating discussion. I feel like the depth of it is it's beyond the scope of what <laughs> I can sort of conceive because we've we've had we've had a lot of conversations about snapping on this podcast. I'm happy you mentioned Lambie as well because Lambie is my he's my data point for extreme, extremely aggressive snapping. So I calibrate based off Lambie snapping because I've had the the pleasure to play Lambie both on ladder and, and in tournament play before. Uh, so yeah, that gives me a good idea. I, before we dive into Thanos, um, you know, strategy, like general strategy for laddering, snapping, etc. I want to hit a few things in the news because, um, you know, it is a new week here. We did have Beta Ray Bill, Bill release, which is a 4-6 as on reveal. Shuffle Stormbreaker into your deck. Stormbreaker is a 0-1, says double Beta Ray Bill's power. Um, Cam, this is a card that you and I were a bit more excited for than some other cards, not crazy excited. How did this yeah. card end up playing out uh, you know, upon release? Okay, so Beta Ray Bill is exactly good enough to be like, oh, that's a good card. And it's part of that package with the Thor stuff that is like 5% worse than everything in every deck. <laughs> like it's it's like, okay, here's my beta ray build deck. It is Sarah, but instead of Sarah, I'm doing the Thor thing. Okay. Here's my beta ray build deck. It's it's Darkhawk, but instead of Iron Lad, I'm doing the beta ray build thing. Okay, here's my beta ray build deck. It's the the bounce annihilist deck, but we have beta ray build it. Like they're all that. Every one of them, every beta ray build deck is just like, okay, here's a real deck, and maybe we made it a little bit worse. But not bad enough, so he's playable. <laughs> that's that's Beta Ray Bill. I, I enjoy him a lot. Uh, he's he's very close to good, and I think that the the, the thing to keep an eye on with him is his package of cards is like only slightly worse than a lot of really good stuff. So if that stuff sees adjustments, suddenly his package of cards end up being just like a best in slot type thing. Right mm. now. There's enough competition from the Annihilus packages, Sarah stuff, things of that nature, that it's not best in slot consistently. But there is absolutely a world where those things get toned down a little bit or the context of the metagame changes and that Thor package ends up being just like one of the best three card packages in the game. Mm -hmm. Thor, your thoughts? I, I haven't played that much, but I faced a lot of it. It's become like really popular on ladder, like people just like testing out all sorts of better a build brews. Like on the first day, like I, I was the person who became the counter deck player. I played a lot of Sarah into it and made a decent, a decent climb with it as well. You're, it's a terrifying deck to face on both sides. Like if you're the if you're the better Ray Bill player, you're you're like worried of all the tech and like I find it kind of interesting that a lot of the popular um, better Ray Bill and Thor decks don't. Uh, main deck Cosmo in them, like, like, so th there's no sort of tech protection, no Shang Chi, uh, no SK protection. So like, you're like super scarily vulnerable to like, to like those tech cards. And at the same time, if you're playing against them, it's just so much harder to calculate the the power output, especially if Jane doesn't come down, or if she does, then. Um, are you playing around an Odin on the last turn? Yeah. Are you playing around a Doctor Doom or a Magneto? It's like the range of possibilities is just so huge. And it's just... And the, sometimes they play a Jane and you, they don't even draw both hammers. They only draw a Wasp and a Hammer. And 
Stormbreakers in the deck. So it's just it's it's not as consistent, but it it also creates a lot of snap equity as well, and I find it kind of interesting. I, I I think it's in a decent spot. Like it's a good card. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I. I want you to dot. Can you explain to me what you exactly mean by snap equity? And can you give us some examples of cards or decks that have more snap equity than other cards, or so than other decks slash cards? Like, like for me, it's um, the classic example is um, Professor X. Like, mm-hmm. it's how snap equity is basically how face up you your 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 deck and uh, your your plays are such that. You know your opponent is gonna get beat right away. Like if you're if you're if your opponent's staring down at a Professor X, the lane is locked. They're dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they play like a Vision, um, uh oh, um, suddenly their their range of possible plays just gets wider, and it there's less of in the game tree. It's less of there's a lot of sure wins, and it's more of like scenarios where um you're just like worse in like almost all of the lines but you're kind of priced into staying and so like you might end up not retreating when you're supposed to and you end up getting burned because of it so it's like snap equity i guess is can be defined as like how much can you get your opponent to stay in essentially Mm -hmm. that's 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 one way i'd describe it i guess it's also how early are you able to leverage stuff, though, right? Because like it, it, it's snap equity isn't just uncertainty; it's uh, it asymmetry, right? And that asymmetry can come in terms of uncertainty, like whether or not they know, uh, you know, like what your turn six is going to look like. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty there, but it can also come in terms of like you know you have lockjaw and mindstone in hand, so you know something they don't, right? Like. It's it's snap equity can like and I think that snap equity is more in uh something that decks have as opposed to cards, whereas the snap equity you're talking about is much more like card specific. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well let's hop into the let's hop into these OTAs. Uh first card was Luke Cage. Luke Cage was previously a two three, it is now a three four. Uh previously said your cards here can't have their power reduced. It's an ongoing effect. And now it says your cards can't have their uh their power reduced. So affecting multiple lanes. What do you guys think about this change? I think it's good. Thank God he's back, right? Like it's not like it's like the biggest threat in the world, but he was totally unplayable at at two three. And this is where the army of cerebro players just runs in from off screen to start punching me in the head. But like he was totally awful there. He was not good. Uh, and, and I think that that is, uh, that's okay for a, a card. Like, it's like, all right, you know, making it go from a card that all the people in that, in, in like one archetype play to a card that like can actually impact the metagame is, is good. Like I've seen some hazmat Luke Cage stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's good that that exists again. I'm happy. Yeah. Tori. Yeah, we've, but the thing with Luke Cage is like, He's just so much less ubiquitous because we've lost mm-hmm. a lot of the, you know, the big early game scaling threats that you need to protect against a Shadow King with. So it's pretty much just Blob and um, maybe uh, Thor and Better Ray Bill right now, unless I, I'm like missing something really obvious. It's like it's really just those, and so like you're not gonna play a three four. A, a three drop in your deck just to like tech against it. It's like tech has just become so weird now. Mm-hmm. And like 
I guess we can like discuss this with Supergiant yeah. later, but like the the game has become a lot more streamlined now since like we've had just so much more efficient cards that's being released that like finding slots for tech cards like Luke Cage or Cosmo or Armor has just become so much more difficult. Interesting. But at least it's an option. I'm glad it exists now and he's a usable card again. So with tech cards harder to slot in, do you feel like decks are going up against each other, both players just trying to kind of do the thing and maybe a bit of ships passing in the night? Like, how would you, how would you describe that in more detail? I see you, KM, with the face. I wanted to clarify, because it's not tech cards, it's the proactive ones. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not like, like, like Shang-Chi is Shang still the most popular card in the game. But the proactive tech cards with less guaranteed impact are a lot harder to get in your deck right now. Like when you look at what you'd be playing them for, usually you're playing them to protect yourself from a thing happening, right? But if you are, say, a Thanos deck, you can just play Kyera instead. That protects you from that thing happening as well, instead of just playing armor. If you are a high Evo deck and you want to spread your points across the board, like you need to be able to justify them offensively in order to include them in your deck now. They need to be like something that is stopping your opponent often from doing stuff like armor into a destroy meta. It can't just be protecting you because there are better costed options for that kind of protection or you use say scar to like end up in a situation where you don't need that kind of protection or you build your deck so it doesn't get completely dunked on by like shang chi or something along those lines right like there are those methods of deck building have taken precedence over include the tech card to prevent the thing from happening mm -hmm. interesting all right, next up we have three move cards that were changed. Uh, first up is Hulkbuster, was a 3-5. It said, on reveal, merge this with a card. Um, with, sorry, with one of your cards here. It is now a 2-3. What do y'all think about the, the energy change here from the 3-5 slot down to the 2-3? Is this a buff? Everyone, or is this a everyone buff? says it's a buff. Okay. Everyone's like, oh my god, they buffed Destroy. They buffed Hulkbuster. I think it's a buff too. And yet, I think Destroy probably got worse as a whole. Because what you're actually seeing in the metagame is a whole lot of ghost and tech cards. And that is really hard for Destroy to beat, no matter how big the Deadpool is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tori, you yeah. pretty much agree with that as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I would. Like, also, like, um, I think it's probably a bit worse as well in like Phoenix Force too. And like mm -hmm. that's like where I've I've been hearing most of the sad. Like the, this, the destroy yeah. players have been rejoicing. For like more consistency, they're they're more like look they're more looking for uh consistent ways to fill out their curve and just ramp out. And like Phoenix Force are just that's more of a high rolly deck and it misses the high rolly Hulkbuster plays a lot mm -hmm. more. Yeah. Next up we have Heimdall. Heimdall previously a six eight on reveal. Move your other cards. Uh one location to the left and is now a six nine, so just a one power buff. Is this enough to tip the scale on this guy? I still, I, I, I'll admit, I still forget about this guy. Um, I, I, I've lost um an eight cuber to this guy recently, and uh, because I forgot about him, and I forgot that he's, he's, he's just playable now. Like, move is in a strange spot where, you know, we've we're we're like we've just had buffs on a bunch of cards, like you know, dagger, mm -hmm. um. For example, so like people are playing it, and like sometimes you just forget, you just forget this card exists, and I think that's that's his strongest asset. Like it's a one power buff. Like there's not much to talk about, but yeah, it's uh, 
First of all, six nine, nice. Let's get that mm-hmm. out of the way. Second of all, uh, he is exactly what he was previously, and I, I was kicking this idea around. It was originally just like, how many cards could we just give a free point of power to? And then it evolved into how many three drops could we not give a point of power to and have it be fine? I think that you could give a point of three, uh, a point of power to every three drop except maybe seven of them, and it would be hundred percent fine. Like all of them except, and here's the list: it's Gladiator, it's uh, Cerebro. We don't want to mess up Cerebro Zero, Mystique, uh, Brood. And then from there, it's like maybe you talk about like Luke Cage. Maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can't give another point of power to Polaris or Spider-Man. But basically every other three drop in the game, you're probably fine to just get a point of power. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of three drops, Ghost, which was previously a one, two, uh, said ongoing. Your cards always are always revealed last has now moved to the three, a three, five. It's good. It's like it's it's the most obvious inclusion in like mm-hmm. the Sarah control list ever and I think the most interesting discussion that's sort of come out out of it is okay we have the Revis Sarah list which card mm-hmm. do we swap out for a ghost yeah. like I think it's been like multiple uh, uh, Mo- Mobius first like that's the first thing I tried um, but like your mileage may vary depending on the mirror so you, you move to Killmonger because like, what does he really target in a meta like this? And like, Thanos stones are Kyra protected anyway. Some people, some crazy people, have cut Legion as well. So it's like the most obvious inclusion. Every Sarah deck will play this, and sometimes like he's now he gives you a budget option for replacing Gladiator in that deck now. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. And finally, we have Spider-Man 2099. Um, the first time this moves to any location, destroy an enemy card there. It was a 4-6. It is now a 5-9. Good. Yeah. Mid. Giving it a, giving it a <laughs> the thumb mid. sideways here. It's a visual gag. Only the people who are watching on YouTube can see this. A thumb side. They, I just realized they also missed my like Jim stare into the yep. camera when you talked about Heimdall. That's crazy. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, the, the, I don't know. People are like, oh, this is worse. And it's like, I, I by how much? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, uh, the card was already pretty bad. It'll probably stay pretty bad. I don't expect it to be much better. I, I, got, I got nothing for it. I got nothing. I don't, I don't know what it's supposed to be. Do you even want a card like this to be good? No. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought. was kicking this around. What would it take for a five energy move payoff to be good? Here, are you ready for my pitch? I've got, I, I thought about this. Are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a five nine, but if it moves, it gets plus ten. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hire me right now, second dinner. Oh my goodness. Like, I feel like SD is like, they're they're like trying. They've like made. They've like noticed a trend that like a lot of the great decks in the meta are like all of these like small ball bounce type decks. Yeah. And like I think they just don't want to design more bounce. Yeah. That makes so sense. like they've 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 been like pigeonholed into like we're gonna force a Hercules through a four drop, a four cost move card. We're gonna force a, a Spider Man twenty ninety nine through. And like it's an experiment. Like. Since the card sucks, I, I, I have, like, no opinions. Well, I'm just going to wait and see because there's nothing much to say here. Yeah. 
And before we head to the main topic, we have two quick bend and snap listener que- listener comments, not really questions. I picked these two because they were, they were kind of funny, to be honest. Uh, first one is from Rezzy. They say, if Brendan says quantitative one more time without a meaningful reason to do so, my prefrontal cortex is going to do a backflip. I mean, hands up. He got me. He got me. Fair. 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 All right. And then the next one is from user. I, they say, hands down, the best flesh and blood slash Warcraft Rumble podcast. Yeah. Love the tangents about Marvel Snap, Bench Press, and Smash Fingers. Keep up the good work. So, yeah. Did I tell you I messed up my <laughs> finger now? I messed up my finger. I like I sliced the inside of it. I don't want to show you. It actually is grosser than yours. I don't want to, I don't want to put it on the screen. Uh, but like, like, it's just like, it just like, I messed up. Like, there's like a little slice on the inside right next to the nail. It is so painful. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah i mean mine I, is I want nothing. mine is destroyed at this point i don't know i don't know what the the future of is it of the nail is but uh it's what not is the future good. of brendan's nail it's not good it's not that's our thumbnail good. yeah no 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 no, no. Uh, what yeah. is the future of Bre- brendan's nail part three it's the future of being demonetized uh not that we monetize anyway <laughs> but that's what that wait we're be. not monetized that's crazy nah all right for um Main topic. So yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call it your Thanos list just to give people something to go off to calibrate them a bit. We'll be talking about you know general Marvel snap strategy as well as Thanos strategy. But to start off, this is the one I gra- snagged from your Twitter, which is Psylocke, Jeff, Lockjaw, Kyra, Wave, Shang Chi, Devil Dinosaur, Vision, Blob, Thanos, Scar, Magneto. Um, this is the list that you look to have been climbing with. Do you why why do you pick this list specifically? You think it's the best deck in the metagame bar none, or is it the best deck for you? Um, it's a bit of both. Um, I've been try. I've been refining Thanos Lockjaw for basically the entire season, um, and that includes when the blob, the blob, the card blob was just the most heinous card in the game. <laughs> I did a lot of like I did a lot of climbing with it, and eventually I settled on this list, but with um, Leech over Psylocke back then. Um, back then, we were all like wondering um, where does Kyra fit, where does Scar fit, and it turns out it fits in this deck. Like, when when people look at this deck, they they, they see the lockjaw high roll game plan and they think like, oh, it's that's that's how you play the deck. It's obvious. And then, uh, a more underrated component of this deck and why it excels so much is that it's a really good wave deck. You mm-hmm. just ramp out cards on like you play wave on three and then you play um three ten power dudes in a row and scar just fits so well into it and Kyra protects your big dudes as well. And I realized very quickly that like I wanted to be proactively ramping up my stuff, protecting my stuff with a tech card, Kyra, which also has uh, you know, utility into several other destroy locations as well. Like that's not something that can be understated as well. Um and I ended up ditching um what was like the previous uh go-to Thanos Lockjaw build that incorporated Killmonger and Death. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up with a list like this. The Leech, um, it was, I think, a lot better. Like, I, I enjoyed it a lot in the previous meta where Blob was just omnipresent and Leech on five just... You, 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 you play um, Leech on five to guarantee your Blob which is just unopposed on, on, on six and it's just the most heinous thing ever. But like even back then, the version that ran Psylocke over it, I think was more popular on ag- in aggregate on on tap. So like this version of the deck existed even then, and like Lambie convinced me to try it out after the patch, and I was like kind of down on Leech, and I was like I picked it up. It makes sense. Um, 
Psylocke gives you a lot more consistency in the early game as well. And yeah, it allows you to ramp up a 5 on 4 or a 6 on 5. And it's just usual Psylocke early game stuff. Um, <laughs> some other things I've messed around with the deck. The Jeff slot used to be Blue Marvel. Like, I used to not run Jeff at all. And then I realized that, like, Thanos is actually a deck, like, much like Destroy, that loves a lot of early game locations. For example, Raft, um, you know, um, Shuri's Lab, uh, White Hot Room. There's a lot of locations that just, just benefit the Thanos deck, and you can just get free snaps on. And, like, Jeff just smooths out the early game consistency. Like, don't, don't, uh, like, a uh, Mind Stone into Jeff is just like a, mm-hmm. it's a snap a lot of the time as well, too. Yeah. And that was, I was going to follow up with that, was just going to ask you about some of the intricacies to the deck. Um, you know, some of the game plans, maybe heuristics, like certain hands that you always snaps, like some of your best hands, like what, what you're looking to do with this deck, the game plan you're trying to execute, et cetera. Just love, would love, cause you're the master of it, obviously, the rank one player in the world, but obviously the rank one player on this deck. Um, just dump as much knowledge uh, as you can on us when it comes to Thanos lock. Uh, I have to correct, like, peak yeah, one. He felt uh, it too. Yeah, it's a moving target and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to keep up. Like, we can talk about it more later, but. Yeah. Semantics. Uh, it's uh, on the thumbnail, it'll say, it'll say one. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just glad to get the screenshot in. But, like, um, Mindstone, obviously, like, Mindstone and, like, if I see Mindstone and, like, two like two six drops i'm a bit more hesitant actually to snap nowadays because like sometimes you don't draw into um cycling your your cycle stones and you just kind of die after because you're you just draw dead after it's like mind stone plus some of some other draw stones time stone jeff lockjaw and i've like enough of those i'd consider snapping it also depends a lot on like um who your opponent is like like if general tip for ladder make sure you're always checking your opponent because thanos is a very common ladder opponent to face against an opposing thanos like sometimes uh like a lockjaw stone hand is enough to stay in against like a th- uh, an opposing turn one thanos snap like that this is just like broadcasting mindstone like broadcasting mindstone is just not enough so you need to you, you need to like hold back a little bit compared to when soulstone drew as uh anyway with regards to playing the deck um the deck runs two main game plans it's like you're either a lockjaw deck or you're a wave ramp deck if you can't do either of those two things you are probably dead and you should probably just scoop when you get snapped back um at all like um so the lockjaw game plan obviously um you're you're trying to draw into lockjaw a lot of the time and um unless you have lockjaw already in hand i'm and um uh, i'm trying to just cycle my draw stones as much as possible like um a lot of people make the mistake of like they're they're not um they're not playing the stones out enough. Um, so yeah, um, you, you want to draw Lockjaw. But once you do have Lockjaw, you don't want to mess it up and like draw into a big stuff. You, want, you don't want to ruin your um, ratio of cards left in the deck by just drawing and playing stones willy-nilly. So 
that's when I tend to save stones. Like, if, for example, I have a mind stone and then I draw a lock, I top deck lock draw. Um, I might play out some some of the stones, um, the ones that don't draw, like uh, power stone and soul stone. But I'm gonna start keeping the ones that do draw, um, for purposes of playing into lock draw. Mm -hmm. What would you? What is your response to people who might critique this deck by saying that the lockjaw game plan is too high variance and they're not interested in in that sort of gameplay? Because I feel like the the lockjaw thing is a bit of a bell curve, right? Where at the you know at the very beginning, people immediately they won't play lockjaw, too high variance, complete casino. But it is a level of controlled variance to an extent, right? What is your response to um, that sort of critique? I mean, I was just getting to that. Like, if you're most of the time, you don't even do, you don't even win with the lockjaw stuff because this is a competent wave deck, like I said. Scar and all of the big stuff, like, just present such a high amount of power for your opponent to overcome because a lot of the decks in the meta don't really play well when given the opportunity to wave ramp nowadays. Um, like, for example, um, let's take a deck like, say, um, Loki, for example, like um, you play Wave, and then their best play on four is almost always Loki, and then you you play a six drop, and you get ahead that way. And even if they copy a bunch of they they get a bunch of stuff, oftentimes you can just maintain the tempo by dropping big stuff into like a discounted scar, and and Blob also helps in that regard as well. So because he's big and. Oftentimes, the Loki player doesn't draw all the nuts as well. So a lot of the game plan relies on navigating the plan Bs. Like, whenever people, like, look at high roll decks like Lockjaw, they always, like, focus on the high roll. But it's, like, the most interesting games are, the, are like, the mid-rolls where you have to navigate the plan B. And, like, this deck does it really well. Like, um, in fact, the, the, the turns when you want to wave in this deck are three or four. Um, yeah. To set up like, um, set up of six drop, playing facilitating playing a six drop as well, um, and also um, like Magneto is pretty good um, as well. The wave scar bug, by the way, like you play wave into like bugged scar with like the wave discount it's not really a thing in this deck honestly because you're not waving that much on five and from my experience mm -hmm. because oftentimes you just want to play out a vision or a devil dinosaur or like play vision first before devil dinosaur don't give your opponent a scar target and like yeah that's basically how you play the deck a lot of it is boils down to cube management really because one thing I really like about this deck, more so than a lot of other decks, is like it's you can get very polarized hands with this deck, and it just makes the decision whether you snap or retreat pretty easy. Whereas you, you play something like another deck, like Sarah Control, where you're like they, oh, your opponent snaps you, and you're like kind of like limping and priced into staying because like maybe you're gonna draw something. With this deck, it's like if if your hand is bad, like you can just feel it. Like it's not gonna get any better. Just don't bother and wait for your opportunity next time. Yeah. Cam, what are your thoughts on the deck in regards to the play style and also its position, the metagame, and of course, its relative power uh, in relation to that position? It's probably the deck I'm worst at snapping with because 
I am a streamer, so I stay in a bunch of games that I shouldn't stay in. And I am a streamer, so I don't snap as much as I can because playing games out is better content. So it's like the I, all my snap stuff is the opposite of how it should be for a deck like Thanos. I'm going to give it a real shot probably right after this because I don't know if you guys are aware. I, I came off just the worst stream in my entire life, lost like 100 SP in three hours. I'm going to I'm going to try to gain it back. That's what everyone does. You go back, you go back to the casino. We're going back to the casino. That's how this works. So I'm learning right now. I'm in the lab and then I'm going to come out of the lab and lose 100 more SP with Thanos. Let's go. Yeah, there's no such thing as losing. It's just quitting early, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but like I, I I have to like preface this by by like saying a lot of the success with with like climbing with for me was like one like Playing the deck during blob meta and mm. like pilot piloting the best deck, probably better than almost anyone else. But like it was the best deck and like obviously the best deck. So like the margins are much worse now. And also like I did my the the, the, the screenshot from my Twitter was taken during the hot location meta. Yeah. And, like oh my god, those, those stats on it were just cracked. But like they were like really bolstered by um. The fact that it was a hot location. I've I've had like another cracked session since then, but like where I went like twelve and three and like a really high cube rate, but like it sort of balanced it itself out a little bit. Um I'm still positive with it, but you know, like it, it comes down to the mental side. Like when, when you're drawing dead with a deck, it can run for a while and you just have yeah. to really get used to that sort mm. of feeling. Yeah, let's let's dive into that. Let's dive into the mental game because I mean, obviously, you've got to have quite the mental game to get reach rank one in any card game. I think Marvel Snap is uh, probably one of the toughest ones because of the 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 cubing mechanic and how mental it can be, um, and especially relevant off the back of Cam's performance tonight. Uh, can you just describe to me <laughs> what your mental game is for Marvel Snap, like tips you've had to help you improve, like things that you're dealing with while you're laddering at such sort of a what would you call like a uh, I'm losing the word, but you know, lathering at the top where the stakes are so high with hi such high stakes. Yeah, like I, I need to like begin this conversation with like, no, you can you cannot just like hit rank one with infinite time. Like the game, this just doesn't work that way. Like I compare it to a treadmill because like at some point on the ladder, the game just start like the more the more standard devi deviations you get from the bell curve, like the game just like tries its freaking damnness to pull you back and it, it starts with like um pretty simple oh your wins are worth three points and then your losses are four and then yeah. eventually um a four cuber is worth um plus 11 and a loss is minus 17 and then if you're not keeping your um win rate or cube rate to like the equivalent of like around 60 percent you're just not gonna climb man and you're just gonna yeah. end up getting bled out over time like for context, the hundred cubes, I, the the hundred ranks I lost, the hundred SP I lost, that was entirely in the context of I I had a forty percent win rate for three hours. That's literally all that happened. I had a forty percent win rate for three hours. Yeah, like the ladder is brutal. I I need to get that out there. Like, mm -hmm. um, like it's it's not just me. Like I have to like give props to everyone who hit rank one before me and like Poggy Bonsi. I'll give a shout out to them as well for being currently um one for like a large part of the season like it's it's pretty difficult and it's like very very easy to tilt mm -hmm. like <laughs> like there are people yeah. who play way more than i do but they just get nowhere they just go up and down up and down and 
So like the like the way I I sort of like visualize it in my head, it's like like poker. You have like sort two sorts of hands. It's like the small stakes ones and then the large stakes ones. In the small stakes hands, you're just like you know um, these are the games that are small and like honestly not a lot happens. Like um, you want to keep these games sort of small because. Oftentimes, these the decisions you make in these games don't have a lot of ramifications. Like, you you can't really influence these games, so they just happen. So you just play and play and play up until you hit a, a game where suddenly the stakes are high. You're 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 you both snapped. You're staying in for four. You're staying in for eight. And then, depending on the results of that game, is where you're going to end up stabilizing. It's like you spend a bit treading water, and then you hit a big game, and then that's your new normal. Like that's how I sort of visualize it. Um, it like it helps me um, sort of maintain my level when you're you're kind of stuck treading water for a lot of it because you're gonna spend a lot of your time on ladder treading water. Essentially, you're just gonna be going nowhere. But you just have to wait for you know they call it the pumper, the opportunity for a big game where you know you can make you can make big cubes. Like that's how poker poker works as well. Like. There you, it, your your success is dependent on how well you do on big hands <laughs> and also it's like a lot of the mental side is like dealing with how to lose like oh I'm so like, bad at that I don't even want to talk about it <laughs> like I have a I have like a, a um, when I was in when I played in the beta like here's something that I did and like it really sort of like drilled in a sort of lesson for me like I have like a, a stat sheet where at the end of every game I would um you know write down um hey um did I make a mistake did I um stay in when I probably shouldn't have um did I did how many cubes um am I from the ideal and like I I sort of did that sort of um mathing it out I just followed it and what I found out was that in like most of the games your decisions have no impact at all whatsoever on the outcome. Like yep. uh, to give a to give a more um, concrete example, like I did like a, a run of twenty games with Hella, just like for the heck of it on ladder. I finished with a record of seven and thirteen, and that win rate is basically perfect uh, upon post game analysis. Like, like you just that's just the nature of the beast. You have to understand like. Oftentimes you just can't manipulate the game at all. You just have to keep treading water and learn how to lose. Like, and like that, what it taught me was like, you know, a lot of the games they don't matter. Like, you you can't get like hung up on a lot of the small losses because you just wait for your opportunity, your big chance to to hit a pumper, to make a big play, and hit mm-hmm. your new normal after a big game. Yeah, I, I really like the way you phrase it, because honestly, I feel like in card games, players can fall into this fallacy of just thinking that they can outplay their opponents and that that is actually the intention of the card game is to give them an opportunity to do that. But when I talk to the best card game players across multiple different games, they have this ability to zoom out and sort of look at the macro, right? When you talk about it in terms of sessions, knowing how to lose, waiting for your opportunity to present itself, where you like 
what makes you such a good player is not that you're able to win every single time you queue, it's that when the opportunity arises for you to be able to get those sort of unusual amount of cues, right? Get that standard deviation in your favor. You are prepared with the skill set to play the game and to take advantage of that. And your, your, your latter experience is effectively just waiting for those opportunities. And while you wait, mitigating your loss so that you don't go down too much waiting for said opportunity. Yep. Yeah. Like learning how to lose is like, it's all about like, for, for one thing, making sure that your emotional state doesn't bleed over into the next game. Like whatever sort of emotion it is, whether it's happy, like you can't like let like, uh, you can't just say like, Oh, I'm going on a hot streak. I'm going to snap in the next game because I'm like, I'm go- I'm I'm like I'm going hot like no you can't do that or if you're losing you can't be like uh screw this I'm everything's going bad I'm just going to play without thinking like you need to keep your mental state grounded and like like for me I'm like a generally a very emotionally grounded person like my emotions don't fluctuate a lot so there's a bit of uh inherent advantage there but like I I spoke about how um I'm like like not a, a like necessarily a card gamer. I'm like a lifelong gamer. I love all sorts of games and like I want to draw um a lesson from one of my favorite games ever which is like Celeste. Awesome platformer. You should you should play it if you have the chance if you love platformers at all. Hard as balls but one of the most accessible ones out there like with a great themes and all that and like one of the one of the big lessons from the game is like you know, your death counter, your loss counter, you know, it's just a number. It's a number to be proud of because it shows, like, how much progress you made. Like, and, like, queuing at all is um, sometimes people get rank anxiety, ladder anxiety. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just the act of queuing at all is just, like, a big thing because it, it's all about the, the mental state and just, like, being able to you know, focus on the game at hand instead of just thinking about what went before. And like, for me, it's like, it's just easy because like in a lot of games, I'm like, like in Hearthstone, I was thinking like, I, I wish I could have left in this game. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm not stewing in my emotions very long, for example. <laughs> yes. like, the games are short. <laughs> yes. So you don't get to stew in your emotions very long. But sometimes yes. I have to take a step back. That like, is... um. Yeah, it is. I, I, like, if, if, you're, if you're able to and, like, you're, you're tilting, just take a step back, take a walk, like, resettle yourself. I do so, like, after losses, after wins, just to calm my nerves. And I find that it helps me a lot, personally, during a long session. It's, it's a funny aspect of uh, other card games. So at this point, we could call Marvel Snap a short-form card game and pretty much every other card game out there, or at least popular TCGs, long-form card games. And I'll say for long-form card games, one of the worst experiences as a player is sitting through games that you have very little chance to win and being ab- abundantly aware of that. Like you mentioned with the Bomb Warrior example. Because you be fa- you're faced with a situation where you've been playing for 5 to 10 minutes, so the, the number's arbitrary, but then per se you have 30 minutes left in the game and it is objectively correct to con- in- incorrect to concede. You must play to your 5% or your 2% or your 1% or, and now you have to go through the experience of spending, you know, 80% of the time you are playing this game, just sitting there knowing that you're losing terribly, waiting. And I love what Marvel Snap has done, where they have almost completely gotten rid of that part of card gaming. 
It's yeah. really, really good. I, in regards to tilt, it is funny because when it comes to tilting in a card game, I know tilt is uh, it's a word, I guess it comes from poker from what I understand. And people used it in all, all sorts of card games, Hearthstone, Magic, etc. I find that tilt rears its head the most in Marvel Snap, that it affects my play because it's so easy to just fucking click that button again, right as you got, you click that button, you go in and you're like, and then you get this weight of emotion uh, mixed with, you know, just kind of logic where it's like, okay, I started my play session at X. I am now at Y. That is significantly lower than I expected. Oh, yeah. If, if I'm going to reach my, you know what, screw my goal for today, I just have to break even. Yep. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. It's terrible. <laughs> and that's where the danger is, is because you're like, I can't, I'm not leaving on a minus 10 or a minus 100. I, I'm going to break even, then I'm going to relax, I'll take a break, everything will be okay, recoup, and then we'll go climb some ranks tomorrow. But sometimes you, you don't break even, and then you just yeah. turbo down. <laughs> It's such a no, such but a, like, but like on in this game, like, oftentimes taking a break is like a complete reset in in many other ways as well. Because like, I'm gonna bring it up, but like, where you ladder, um, your local ladder meta is different, and like, you know, the time of day when you play, oftentimes the people who are playing alongside you change, and you know, sometimes maybe you're just sick of running into the same um, Loki player when you're yeah. playing Thanos nonstop, right? So, you know, like, stepping away from that reason, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, in, in a game like this, like, use a poker analogy, like, don't sit on a table, like, look for the weaker tables, like, look for your opportunities where you feel like you're running well and the, you're, you're, do it, you're stronger than everyone else on ladder, like... Mm. That's something I've definitely experienced several times this season. And like, it's something I'm sure a lot of players on the, who've reached like rank one can relate to. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's oftentimes not really a steady climb, but like, you're, 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 you're like sitting in the same spot for, for like one day and then suddenly you make a big jump another day. It's like, a hundred points of SP difference is a lot and also not a lot at the same time. Like sometimes you gain it really quickly, sometimes you're just struggling, but it's just and and like there's some crazy people who can grind up from like nine thousand to ten thousand in like just one week and it's just like mm -hmm. they're they're just the most nutty players. <laughs> I've seen it all, man. I wanna ask you about the question. Um I'm not sure if your your motivations when you queue up for a game are exactly the same, you know, Cam maybe being a bit more on the content side, but when you do set up a play session for the day, do what kind of, like what do your goals look like? Do you set an individual goal for the day? You're like I'm starting at X, I hope to finish at Y. Like how do you sort of parse it in your mind of like what your goal for a session or a day is or do you not even look at it in that sort of time frame? Do you uh, stretch it out a bit more? I just try to go positive. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much yeah, it. Same. Yeah, same here, but um like speaking more generally, like your your mileage really varies. Like there are days when I'm content with ending a couple of points up or even a couple of points down because hey, that's just how the games went. There's nothing more you can do. Um I'm like my last session I came down um like twenty SP just due to variance. That's just it. You can you don't don't chase trying to climb back. 
And there are other times, like, I think this is something Lambia said, but, like, if you're running well, you're running hot, try not to stop your momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's, that's how he plays it. I also like to play it, like, I like to end on a high as much as possible, like, some sort of high. So, like, there's something positive I can, like, take away from this session. Like, like it, 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 like I, I end on a win, a big win, or um, or a win of some kind, just so like it puts me in a mindset where like, hey, I, I know the ladder session like bookended with a good feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna be staying away from it the next time. I've uh... like, sorry, but, like I... really, what? Go ahead. Like when I'm looking at the the ladder, like I spend a lot more time than most looking at the leaderboard because I'm like I'm plotting out. Like, <laughs> Where I'm gonna end up, you know, and and all that, and really, it's just um, you end up where you end up. You can't like make plans because the minute you're like, you become too results oriented. That's when you start um, you you start letting outside influences start to affect your game. Yeah, absolutely. There's um there's an aspect of that that I think uh, relates to uh, Q anxiety on ranked. Um, is it players or people in general that can have their ego sort of centered around a um, theoretical rank, right? They, they view themselves as a diamond player, per se. And then when the ranking system via their gameplay puts them into a rank that is not diamond, there is a level of dissonance that makes them feel like this must be incorrect, right? Um, so there can be some anxiety that uh, is associated with the latter because of that. I want to ask you both, because you mentioned this in what you just said, um, at the highest level, which is where you both compete. How do you delineate between losses that are attributed to variance and losses that are attributed attributed to uh, player mistake? Because um, you know someone can write it in the YouTube comments. I've used this word a couple times, and that's fine. But I'll say this is also like a bell curve. At the lowest end, you have people. It was variance. It's bullshit. You know, I can't believe it happened. You know, you get to the mid level. It's like okay. Um, you know, sometimes I make mistakes, but there are some things out of my control. And at the highest level, the highest level players are able to appreciate variance for what it is, while appropriately assessing their own skill and their own mistakes and being able to improve from these losses that can be attributed to either. Um, but back to the original question, because I know I, <laughs> I went away from it for a bit, which is how do you delineate between what is truly variance and what is uh, a player mistake? Well, I'm very lucky in that I stream on Twitch.tv. <laughs> so people tell you all the time. <laughs> I know every, every single time something could happen that is plausibly my fault. Uh, I, I know it is. That's, that's how that works. Is So I, I don't run that risk at all. I am so set on that. That is the easiest thing in the world for me. Uh, there's, there's no risk there for me whatsoever. What about you, Tori? I think it's a skill you can develop just like anything else in this game. Like, um, for me, um, the skill in this game involves being able to, you know, stay on top of what your opponent is doing, what the range of plays are. If I'm playing a turn six, and, like, this aspect really helps me from, like, tilting from, you know, those four cubers where um, if I played this on this lane, I played it on this lane, I lose, I win, or whatever. Like, I'm okay when I make a mistake and it's just attributed to like, oh, okay, it's just um, lane, location, play RNG, uh, 51, 49, whatever. That's like, whatever to me. What I really get more salty and angry at is when I just completely miss the play altogether. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a good example. Like, for example, um, 
my last loss against the the Heimdall I mentioned, I was playing Sarah Control and like I pretty much had a guaranteed win, except I forgot about Heimdall. Like if 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 the play was like guess where the big guy ends up and I have to guess where the Shang-Chi is and like you make the decision before you press mm-hmm. the end turn button. Yes. Yes, yes. If you to to stay in the game or not. And therefore you have to accept the way the dice rolls work. Like like that's just part of the mental side of the game. You just have to accept the dice rolls for whatever they are. If you miss if you just completely forget the ga- the the plays or you just don't c- consider the plays, that's when you get really mad. Like that's when I get really mad personally. Cause like that's just um, on me as a player. I should have thought of it. Yeah. And evaluating that in the post game, like taking time after your losses, like like I said, um I spent um a session in the beta, like going over. Um was this stay right? Did I have any did any of my decisions have an influence on the outcome? Oftentimes the answer is no. And yeah, you just have to be okay with it as it as it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to quickly weigh in, um, you know, kind of a tangent, but my biggest my biggest weakness as a player across every single card game is can likely be attributed to just playing too fast. Like it happens to me so much more often than it should that I will make a play, um, lock it in. Whether I click end turn on Marvel Snap, I pass a phase to my opponent in Flesh and Blood, Magic the Gathering, or I end my turn in Lorcana. And it doesn't take anything from my opponent. It takes about three seconds in the real world time to me be like, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> what, <laughs> what the hell did I just do? And it really, it really bugs me. Like it really, it, there's, I really don't get irritated about variance. I think uh, for me, my emotional game is pretty strong and I'm pretty like level, um, especially like long loose streaks. Like I can take them, like all of that. But this thing that happens to me where I make this decisions. Yes. I make decisions that I should not make, that are wrong. They are suboptimal plays. And I know that if I had just had a heuristic, if I had a law in my brain for Marvel Snap, let's say, to let that freaking timer run out every single time, I would mitigate 98% of those mistakes. 98. Because it all comes from my lizard brain locking in a play, clicking enter. I don't know why it happens, but it's just it's it's transcended across card games, and it's one of the things I have to work on the most is that I have to take my time. There's just something about the way that I engage with these games where I just don't appreciate the um, what time can do for for framing and you know seeing other lines. Yeah, um, like I want to talk about this as well. Like, um, what was I gonna say? Like when it, like. For me, um, I, I tend to play faster and loose on ladder. It's a more of a conscious decision just to get more games in. But like, for me, it's like it's become a conscious decision to like um, to lock in. Usually, that happens when I play like uh, battle mode, conquest tournaments. Like, it, it's sort of a state of mind. Like on ladder, I'm more focused on like maintaining the overall level. Um, you know, the mental, the keeping the mental good. Um, because it's a long session, you play a lot of games, a lot of stuff happens. You don't have to focus as hard, but it's a conscious decision, and and everyone and everyone's different. Some people like to really take their time on ladder games, um, really sweat out each individual turn, um, and that's fine. Like, really, whatever works for you, and 
it's about finding what you're comfortable with. Mm. Yeah, I would argue. Um, so obviously, it doesn't apply to ladder because ladder you're you're also balancing another function, which is sort of rate of games, how many games you're playing in a session, and how much disposable time you have to play in order to climb. But say you're in a tournament uh, for Marvel Snap, you, like in there could be things outside of tournaments, but there will be situations where you're playing this game um, where it is objectively correct to just take your time and to sweat at every single term and to take that time. And that sounds so oh. obvious, but I promise there are idiots in this world like myself that will still lock in that play a little bit too early. Like it is a real conscious decision for me to, to take my time and try to pay attention to everything. Um, but yeah, I do want to, unless you have anything to call on that, I do want to transition to competitive Marvel Snap, specifically tournaments. I do want to talk about tournaments because you have won a tournament in Marvel Snap. Um, what do you think about Marvel Snap as a competitive game um, at the highest level, like a, cur- like a curated level, like a, a tournament level? Do you think that this is a good game in that setting? Um, I think it is. I, I love it. It's, it's really simple when, like, okay, like, I, I, I want to um, sort of dive into um, sort of my experiences with, um, you know, the tournament setting. Because, like, I had friends who found out about, who, like, watched me play the Hong Kong tournament, which, like, um, they were, like, watching the stream. They played, like, zero snap whatsoever, and they had no idea what the hell was going on at all. And like, so I like we, we we tend to take for granted how easy it is for a game to be picked up. But like, I, I feel like we can do um, maybe a lot more as like commentators to, you know, explain the ropes for new newcomers like as well, like how the game works. Because like my 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 friends they watched me my stream and they were like, I don't know what the hell is happening <laughs> in battle mode. But like, they're, 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 that's the first sort of kind of issue I have with like the tournament setting like as a concept at all and the second one is like the fact that it's optimal to rope and it just like leads to just lengthened tournaments just makes it worse to watch I guess but a lot of that is caster heavy lifting but it's like it becomes more of a drag if like every turn people are just like playing until the rope because it's always optimal to take the max amount of time because that's when, that's when you're supposed to snap and all. You're supposed to snap at the end of the rope and that's so dumb. I hate it. Mm-hmm. But like, getting those gripes out of the way, I love it. Like, battle mode is how I sort of envisioned um, snap to go from the start. Like, using the, the cube as just the main way to have stakes in this game. It's just like, it's straight out of backgammon. Mm-hmm. But you know how the life system ends up being your offensive weapon as well. Just like adds a whole nother layer of um, strategy with like how you have to do health and cube management mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I really enjoy that as like a competitive scene. I want, and- sorry, I just want to, I want to make an, a, an assertion and get both uh, you and KM's take on it, which is, and I, I think I have a little bit of credibility when saying this because I've played other games, multiple other card games at, the highest level. And that's it. I think that Marvel Snap is the greatest competitive card game that has ever existed. And I know that it doesn't have 45 minute matches and there's not infinite deck building decisions and there's not all the intricacies that you might get with something like Magic the Gathering. But in terms of depth 
competitive depth and skill expression and just the stakes. Nothing has compared, nothing has even come close to my experience playing Marvel Snap at a competitive LAN. Like it is an incredible card game because usually when you play a card game at the highest level, see the margins tend to like, they start to shrink in a sense. Like both players are so familiar with the card game and they're, they're both just taking the optimal lines. And I feel like the expression kind of, you know, it starts to slim away a bit, right? There's an objective way to play the game correctly based off the hands you're given. Some card games are different. Some might give more agency, but Marvel Snap, I felt like only got more complex at the highest level because of the snapping mechanic, because of my opponent. Like there were so many things that were, I was weighing playing this game. So many things beyond just playing my, my cards on curve or playing, you know, playing my initial game plan. It was just, it was a fascinating experience. And I think also in, in regards to your comment for spec, like users watching for the spectators, I do think, and I've said it a million times in podcasts, I think it's nothing comes close. <laughs> Other card games are a foreign language to people looking at that. The amount of domain knowledge you need to understand a card game uh, to watch it is incredible. It's borderline impossible. Marvel Snap, the cards are visual. Um, number go up in the lane is the win condition. Like it is tangible. So I think that it is the best. It could be better, like you said, but it is the best for that. What do y'all think about that assertion that Marvel Snap is the best competitive card game? I think that the best competitive card game is the one that the most people get into, if that makes any sense. Like, it, yeah, it could be the best competitive card game, but I don't know if I would say that it absolutely 100% is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. mm. I, uh, I think that a lot of things make a game great. And Marvel Snap has a lot of those things that make games great. But I don't necessarily think that... Like, you could say best competitive card game. I feel like that's just a... That's a really high bar. Yep. I guess what, one thing to comment about the competitive scene, and like this is an assertion that I keep hearing like over and over in, um, in spaces, but like saying that the highest level of Marvel Snap, competitive Marvel Snap, doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because um, people don't have the motivation to like really fine tune the really super nitty gritty. And to some extent, I believe that. And I believe that because, like, going back to poker, we talk about solvers and how, like, mm -hmm. the emergence of solvers has, like, changed that game. Backgammon. We go back to backgammon. Did you know that in those tournaments, players are given points based on how close they follow a computer solver? Because it's just everything is just mathematically prompted, is, like, calculated out. Like, like the, the, the grandmaster, the, the, the highest skilled player in, like, a backgammon is the highest rated because he follows the solver the closest. Mm -hmm. And we have no such thing as in Marvel Snap. And I think that's because um, like in, in, in poker, that's like that sort of complexity comes in like the game theory betting. Like you, you stay in here X percent of the time, you fold here X percent of the time, you raise here X percent of the time, blah, blah, blah. And like no such thing exists for Snap because like, because the decks are different and like the locations are different, it, it just makes it such a difficult problem to solve. But like in the same sense, no one has even attempted to like try to work at the game at that sort of level of detail. Mm -hmm. And maybe they never will because the game is just a crazy competitive metagame that just 
break that rewrites all its rules and changes the card text like every week or every other week. <clears throat> so um I don't know um the limit of what is possible in competitive snap. And I honestly wish that there was more incentives in in that regard to for it. Because like the grassroots tournament scene is great, but it's only grassroots, right? Yeah. I uh I've actually thought about that concept a lot. <laughs> Um, not in regards to solvers and for, for backgammon or poker, but in how it relates to things like Magic um, or Flesh and Blood, which are, are very solvable games because you can assign uh, numeric values to cards and just take highest value lines. Obviously, there's corner cases, they're context-based on board, but they're outliers at best. Um, I think that Marvel Staff could be solved. I think that solver could be created. But I do think that it will always be impossible for the human brain to be that solver. I think that if a solver did exist, it would be computer-based. And of course, I mean, solvers are just by definition but what i'm saying is that to reach the limit to reach the optimal play of marvel snap is actually not possible and it's very far from possible too where i think in other games it's much it's much easier to reason that's that's where my sentiment came from before i talked about two high level players in some of these other games taking optimal lines and that you know this sort of this expression kind of slims a bit or in Marvel Snap, I think that there's a, there's a lot more of this unknown and way to express yourself, mostly because of the cube system, but also the inherent randomization with the locations, the different decks, etc. That's why I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. All right. I agree. Yeah. That is why it's so yeah. fascinating. That's a great take. Um, yeah, like, like I'm, I'm like, I'm just like um, waiting on like more opportunities for like, um, you know, tournaments to come out. Yeah. Um, I, th I think I can talk about this. Um, like I, I, like the grassroots tournament scene for me has been like really good to me. Like that's where I really made my name for the, my name for myself. Um, like I achieved a lot, like even before I won the ER snappers assemble, like, and, and doing well. And like, you know, the, the battle arena snap fan circuits and, uh, like, I guess I can announce here, like I'm looking forward personally to, you know, the SnapFan World Championship, the date is like in the March of, um, March of like nine to 10. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, um, that news will be out and you don't have to cut this bit out because uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we, I, can, I can freely talk about it, but like, like I think it, I've, I've heard a common sentiment that like the players in this competitive scene are like they're not much better and i like wholeheartedly disagree like mm. the players that like actively feature in the in like the top competitive battle modes like the same names pop up consistently mm -hmm. like yes it's not just lambie it's not just me there's so many like unknown names that that uh this you know have made them names for themselves like johnson if he didn't beat me in the that snap fan open like where would he be you know yeah, I think like the tournament scene is important for like establishing names like names like that, and you know, yeah. like I'm hoping for the success of the the Snap Fan tournament. Um, it'll be a big one for sure, um, a pretty big prize pool as well, and like that's all I can say. Like I'm just I'm just hoping for more opportunities to just showcase that side of Snap. It's not just ladder, it's not just conquest, but like 
the stuff outside of it as well. Do you think that the grassroots scene can grow the, co the competitive community um, enough that can get it to a state where you know players like yourself are able to compete in ways that are sustainable they're satisfying you know like they feel like um your your output is relevant to your uh, your input to an extent or do you think that the publisher in terms of second dinner uh needs to also have a layer of support in terms of maybe their own tournament structure maybe subsidizing grassroots etc do you think it can all come from grassroots i'm honestly i don't honestly don't i don't think so like we can, you know, become an underground scene. Like you have all these names, like you know, KJB, mm. Moyen, Desmond, um, OKJK, for example. Like these are John Cat. These are some cracked players. I'm sure most of the viewing public have no idea who of the who these names are that I've mentioned. And but like these are some of the best players in in Snap, but like no one knows them, and that's that's a shame. But that like all of that depends on like really second dinner like um one of like the recent news articles i saw was like the lorcana world championship and like that like the disney the lorcana uh, the, what was the name of the publisher ravens ravensburger yeah. ravensburger yeah they're like you know investing a little bit into the scene like yeah you 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 for for the publisher you get what you put in you know the, the level of output, the, the level of competition depends on what you're able to yeah. invest. Um, so I would like to expand that slightly just because I'm really passionate about it is uh, this idea of aspirational content, something to aspire to in a card game. I think it's really important. Um, and I think it's very, very important for casual players as well. We were, I had a Savige, a Hearthstone player um, for a long time, 10, you know, content creator for a long time, one of my podcasts. And he was talking about the fall off of the casual scene when the Masters Tour sort of changed, right? When it went online, when it became inaccessible. And it seems that it affects the casual players more than the the competitive players, the, the entrenched community, because I don't know what it is, but I know when I played Hearthstone, it's what took me away. But as a casual player, when I play a card game, it's very important, even if I plan to never compete at the highest level, I never I never plan to be on the Masters Tour, for example. It's important to me that something like that exists because something that I can aspire to. Because if I don't have a level to aspire to, then card games just become hedonistic fun. And as soon as I find myself in an experience of a card game I don't enjoy, you know, a match I don't enjoy, a day I don't enjoy, a day I lose too much, I ask myself why. Why do I keep doing this? This is obviously not bringing me joy this exact moment, this immediate moment. Why keep playing? And if there's nothing to measure yourself against to get better, to improve, then I find it hard to answer that question of why. And that's why I think that these esports scenes, not just, but these tournament scenes and these, uh, you know, like high level tournament scenes, like world championships, like nationals, they're very important to a card game and not to just its competitive um, player base, but also to its casual player base. It also creates great content. It creates great content. It creates stories. It creates narratives. It creates you know, sort of grassroots grown players in your own community. Like there's just so much. Like I feel like the competitive scene percolates down so much and is so important to the success um, of a card game and the adoption of a card game past just the 200 or 300 players that might compete in that exact tournament, whether it's the World Championships or something else. Yeah, like SD are. They're they're like so afraid to even attach like tangible rewards to even the ladder climb. I think it's a Pandora's box that is scary to open. Like, what happens when we lock uh, any sort of reward around uh, the ladder grind? I've experienced that actually. The mm -hmm. the Nian challenge, if you remember, that the top ten thing 
yeah. it, last year actually, where you know you have to like grind like a bunch of cubes per day. I hit like rank two hundred or something just to place in the top ten. I was playing on my dentist seat while like while dry like while being driven to a dentist, like my dentist appointment, just so I could you know play get the required games in that last four hour scramble. Like, but like. The, the the reward drove me and yeah. like that's just, that's the kind of thing that I'm I think SD are afraid to like really mesh with like the casual nature of the game like it SD is at odds with itself in a lot of ways and like that's just one of them I suppose yeah it's um it's an interesting thing like you said uh, these rewards so we do have rewards in Marvel Snap but um they're not really gate kept by any sort of uh by you know what it becomes less and less meaningful what it is gate kept by what you have to do to achieve these rewards um and i think that's because i don't know they look at these rewards as the idea that someone could not have access to it either via not playing enough uh not being skilled enough etc is just it's like a feels bad scenario and i agree that that is that is what happens like that is the immediate result but i do think that it is okay for people to not get things, to not achieve everything, sometimes based off their own merit, but sometimes based off variance. And for me as a player and me as a person, that's what motivates me to come back, to get better, to invest in, you know, like, like that's why I would consume other content, watch other streams is because I want to improve and ultimately maybe get that reward and measure myself against that reward. When the rewards mean nothing, it, it's hard to measure yourself against the system because even like it's where we are now, I think with, you know, some of these ranks sometimes with infinite, like my experience with infinite nowadays is just, it's just bots. And this is a, we've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast about the, the ladder climb. So you have to go into it, but yeah, I agree with you that I think that SD is scared of having <clears throat> rewards that, not that aren't extremely accessible to all the player base, no matter where where they put them, whether it's behind the highest rank of the game, or etc. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure about it to uh, to be honest. And I don't know if it would change a lot. But uh, just getting back to our original concept, I, our original topic of the the competitive play, I do hope that SD realizes the potential they have uh, with Marvel Snap for competitive play. Unfortunately, I think the industry precedent is the opposite of that. The industry precedent is that a lot of these card games that have invested deeply into esports, it's not gone super well for them. So, you know, we have Runeterra, the, the recent announcement, we have Hearthstone winding things down. We had, you know, not exactly a, a, an analog, but Magic took off its pro league for a bit. They brought it back. But yeah, unfortunately, the industry precedent isn't really there. But I think if, if you're, if you are second dinner and you're looking to create a game for more reasons than money, and you're looking to create a game for legacy, a game that can last, I do believe that esports is a part of that. If you create a game that you're going to be proud of in 10, 20 years that has lasting staying power and where you can build up your own community, create your own players, your own narratives, I think that that is aligned with competitive play and with esports. It might not be the immediate short term you can make the most money doing this, but I think if you want to build a game that you can you can be proud of and you'll have a legacy with that will last a long time, I do see. I do think that esports is a part of that. Yeah, um, I hope that like if you do end up making um, getting hired for the CM position, <laughs> Brendan, go go go! I I love that that passionate speech, man. I I don't think anyone could have said it better. Like that is that is true. Here here, yeah. 
Well, I know we're all passionate about it. All of us have been able to experience the game at the competitive level. Uh, the last thing I'll say on the topic is that Marvel Snap at an in-person LAN is a very special experience. It is not like playing on ladder. It is very special. And it was more fun. <laughs> I had more fun playing Marvel Snap at a LAN than I did playing any other physical card game in my life. Like, it was a truly special experience. Oh, my God. The Hong Kong... <laughs> production value is just wild man km can attest man it was very like, crazy yeah like it was unlike anything i've played like i played a bunch of like also like local tournaments in in the philippines like um, where i'm from and we have a healthy scene here but like production values in the streaming and it's just like wow it's like a whole different level it's a it's a full it's a full pack schedule like i think it's something that i think any competitive gamer should be like trying to experience and aspire to experience at least once. Yeah. It's just unlike anything else. Truly. All right. The last thing I want to touch on <clears throat> is I just want to give you a chance, Tori, to um, like any general improvement strategies you have for Marvel Snap um, targeted at, let's say, like the intermediate player, the casual player. Like, what are your, some of your number, number one go to level ups in the game? It's for me. Um, I guess play trying to play out the game in advance. Like it's it's a skill that people don't really dis talk about. But like when you're playing turn one, you want to be like envisioning where does your where do your cards go? Like for example, like let's go to the very basic um, zoo deck. You you're running like Angela and Bishop. You like how do you want to efficiently spread your power so that you're not like wasting power. So like you did, you did you from the start of the game, you, you say, oh, based on this location being favorable for Angela, maybe it's a Shuri's lab or whatever. I put Angela here, I put Bishop here. And like that level of thinking, like as early as like turn one or turn two, probably makes the biggest difference. And like it also bleeds into the snapping and retreating as well. Because if you're thinking um several turns ahead, then you can make more accurate snap and retreat decisions. It's like why I also find myself like I'm jumping onto a random stream. Like when I try to make chats, I just spout utter nonsense because I'm just not locked in. Like you have to really lock into the game from like the first turn and just like kind of feel its flow and like really plan from the start. And like that's, I think that's the main tip I have. Like that's not just generic snap and retreat better. <laughs> <laughs> Just be better. Just Duh. be better. <laughs> Easy. Easiest thing to do of all time. It sounds it's bad, true. but that's legit advice sometimes. Um, oh, all yeah. right. I want to I wanna get a feel from both of you because we are a little bit late into this podcast. Do you want to do power predictions for um, the upcoming February cards? Are you guys feeling it? Sure. Why not? All right. Let's sure. do it. All right. This season's a bit, I mean, so basically this is, we have two cards released when the season pass comes out. So the first one is Black Swan, which is a 2-3, says on reveal it, until the up, end. Up, 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 up. It's a 3-5. It's a 3-5? They switched it? Yep, yeah. It's a 3-5. Okay. Or maybe I just got the numbers wrong here. But anyway, Black Swan, 3-5, um, like you said. On reveal until the end of your next turn, your one cost, your one cost cards cost zero. Can't I like sense. her a lot more as a 3-5 than I did as a 2-3. But I'm not sure if she's good regardless is sort of my thing. I don't really understand who she's for or what she goes in. But I do think as a 3-5, she makes a lot more sense because you're playing a lot of small stuff. You need the other stuff you play in the deck to have an impact on the board. 
So it makes sense to me that a 3-5 would be a, a plausible way to approach. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, let me give you like a Thanos perspective. Like, I think this helps more in decks where you're obviously uh, more constrained by energy. And honestly, that doesn't happen a lot with Thanos Lockjaw. Yeah, it's not a Thanos it, like, card. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a Thanos Lockjaw card. Maybe it's like you play it in like your more mid-range Iron, the, 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 more, the, the, decks, the Thanos decks that run Iron Lad. For mm-hmm. example, but but like, it's not a Thanos lockjaw card. That's that's my take. Hmm. Yep. The ability itself is really interesting to me because I feel like I do think they played it safe because it's an on reveal. It's the end of your next turn. It's a three five. But uh, I feel like effects like this one cost cards costing zero um, is dangerous to an extent. I mean, your one cost cards can only be so impactful. But the difference between something costing one and zero is basically infinite zero is just so much more powerful and it's something that sd has shown sort of a history of of trying to avoid you know these zero cost cards i think to an extent or at least making them easily accessible so while i agree with you in terms of its immediate impact um and i'm not aware of i'm not it doesn't come to me of what deck it would it would fit in right now i do think that the effect itself has the potential to be very very powerful all right, on to Super, uh, Super Giant, which is a 4-5, which says, On reveal, all cards played next turn don't reveal until the game ends. This is weird. Um, <laughs> this is so weird. Yeah, <laughs> that it's is the like, right word there. Like, it's, it's like, it's such a powerful effect, but I honestly have zero clue which decks want her. Like, yep. first of all, like, th- there's a big challenge, like, Everyone talks about this card, how it ruins the turn five plays, you know, the Prof X, the Sarah, the Leech, and, and all. That's also reliant. Like, first of all, that's reliant on you playing Super Giant on four, mm-hmm. which is a very important turn of the game. Like, let's, let's, let's get that out there first. So, like, you're playing this instead of something else. And so, with Super Giant, like, you're giving up, uh, like, Four drops are like a four fourteen. That's the gold. That's become the gold standard four drop. And so, if you're playing this instead, uh, what are you? What sort of deck are you playing? Like, is it the Iron Lad curve out thing? Are you playing this as a tech card because like bounce with Black Swan on five into Hit Monkey on six just becomes so ubiquitous? We're forced to play Super Giant. I have no clue. It's mm. so meta dependent. Again, same, same yeah, sort of take. I, I have no idea if this card makes any sense at all in any context whatsoever. It's one of the weirdest cards I've ever had to try to evaluate because of that exact thing, where it's just like, does this ever make sense in a million years? Is this an actual thing that makes sense to do in a game of Marvel Snap? And I gotta tell you, I cannot figure out the answer. Mm. I actually think Tori hit the nail on the head. I think the card's pretty bad, but um, like if it's ever good, it's going to be in such a myopic and specific meta that like other things will have to be so degenerate and so powerful that you're willing to put a 4-5 in your deck to have this kind of ability. And I think that you laid out a good example. Um, so it reminds me of kind of like OG Shadow King, which was a terrible card, but in like the most specific and degenerate scenarios, it was actually playable. Uh, and not even on ladder, I think it was playable in like very, very specific scenarios because it was just a poorly static card. So I think it's of similar power level, to be honest, of like OG Shadow King. I feel like uh, that's low because like it's it's a card where it's like 
I totally understand why this makes sense, right? Or what this card actually does, but I won't be able to evaluate it until it's out. Yeah. I just won't know how that shit works. But I feel like for card evaluations, uh, like a lot of the satisfaction people get listening to us is like when we're right and when we're wrong. And I would be happy to put my neck out there slowly and say that I think this card will be bad. Like I think it'll be a bad card. Uh, doesn't mean it would never be useful, never be impactful, but I do think that ultimately it's it's not good. And if it comes out and it's like the greatest card in the game, I'll take the L for that one. <laughs> Happily. All right, next one. Cold Obsidian, 410. Um, you can only play this where you have a one cost card. Yeah, interesting good. card. So it's like, uh, I mean, same crossbones type stat. No, one. no, no, he's better because you can put the one cost card there with him. Yeah, like you, you don't have to. You don't have to do all the ridiculous stuff with this one cost card. So yeah, so crossbones stat line with a much easier condition to meet, and crossbones is like not crossbones is a four eight. Though. It's I did ten. Oh, so it's even better than that. Then, um, I mean, this card seems pretty powerful. I mean, <laughs> we have someone here right now that puts a lot of one cost cards in their deck. What do you think, Tori? Um, again, like, is this a Thanos lockjaw card? I have maybe. It's 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 hard to say it. It like falls into so you're like it's not a high roll card. It's more of a B uh, yeah. like a, a plan B game plan sort of thing, and like maybe it has a slot. I don't know the deck. The deck slots are like very very tight. So I'm like now I'm trying to think what do you cut to play this card, and it's kind of difficult. I think um, the other interesting place where you can put this deck is in bounce. Obviously, yeah, mm -hmm. it's like a big. As like a big go tall guy who is cheaper than Iron Man and sort of has a very similar effect. Mm -hmm. So and you don't have to like pre-play him, I guess. So like that's where I see this card. Um again, it's hard to evaluate, but maybe it's a bounce card or a mid-range Thanos card. It's a zoo card, baby! You're not gonna be able to stop <laughs> me from talking about zoo on this podcast. I've been silent for so long. It's a zoo card. That card goes in zoo. That's where we want it. And zoo, for the love of God, boy, does it ever need it. Zoo Jesus needs thing. the help. Let me put it that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll hold my breath. I'll see how long that lasts, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> All right, next one, uh, Corvus Glaive, 3-5, on reveal, discard two cards from your hand and to get plus one max energy. I don't get this guy. I don't know who he's for. Maybe he goes in Hella. There's already too much Hella for my tastes, personally, right now. I'm already, I'm already sick of the card Hella. I, I don't think we need any more, but, like, he maybe makes sense in a Hella deck, just because, you know, you get to ramp stuff out and, like, get ahead of a leech, that kind of thing. But I don't think there's a single other deck that I'm like, yeah, Corvus goes in there. And I wish I was wrong about that, because I would like that to be true. You know, the problem with effects like these, like, you know, Electro and all that is like, you, you end up in like a, a, a weird deck building situation where you want to build your deck to rely on this card. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah. when you don't get this card, your you're just work. like, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're, 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 you're just a heavy ass deck that can't play crap. At least he's a he's a decent sized body. Like I think he was like a three four before, and that was like legit the worst thing ever. Like he, he's a three five. That's become the sort of standard stat line for three drops. Like maybe he he can see play and like discard. I think like maybe he's interesting with the next card we're gonna talk about. Mm -hmm. But 
discard decks aren't really starving for energy. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way, as they're currently constructed. We need more That's payoffs. definitely true. Yeah. And the next card is Proxima Midnight, which is a 4-7. says, when this is discarded, uh, it jumps to your, lo your lowest power location that isn't full. Does Proxima speak to you by itself? I, I'm just stuck on the name Proxima here. I believe it is Proxima Midnight. Oh my god! I believe, I believe that is pronounced Proxima. You know, KM, I have a pretty good track record of getting these names correct. Yeah, definitely. That's a thing that you have. I believe in you. <laughs> that, that sounds accurate to me. What do you think? The interesting, the interesting thing about this card is just the 4-7 stat line. You know, this is like the second card that has this stat line, and it's been buffed from a 4-6. Hercules yeah. has it. No other card has it. Proxima was originally supposed to be a 4-6. They made her a 4-7, and I guess this is the stat line of new cards now at a fourth cost. Like I think like that inter that conversation is more interesting. As for this card itself, um, where where like where do you play this? Um, <laughs> yeah, like that is kind of the question, isn't it? it? It's a really powerful effect because it's targeted, and like that makes it kind of interesting. And seven power is not small. It, it, it's like it's like old stature, and mm -hmm. old stature got played, but also like. You have to reliably be able to discard her mm -hmm. to, to get her on the board for free. And a deck the decks that do that don't currently really exist in this game. So yeah. we're gonna have to come up with something new. If that it makes exists sense. at all. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. It so does for me seem like a come up with something new angle for sure. Yeah, for me, um, to sort of distill my thoughts on the this month's this upcoming month's cards, I'm probably most excited for Cold Obsidian. I think Black Swan. Ultimately, I don't know if it has to go undergo some uh, energy and power changes till it is, but I do think that card has the potential to be powerful um, in the future. Uh, maybe even the future when it releases, but I'm not sure. The effect itself can be powerful. I just don't immediately see the deck it fits into. But I think Cold Obsidian is probably the most interesting to me right now. Um, I think that that effect is like relatively flexible. Like, it's not a crazy hoop to jump through. Like, one of the, I think one of the things that we do really well in this podcast is evaluate cards that are overhyped um, and notice them as being overhyped because they have to jump through certain hoops for power where other cards yeah. do not and other cards are much more consistent. This is one of those cards where it is clearly a powerful card at a 410, uh, at a 410 stat line. But I also think that the hoops that you're jumping through where you need to have a one cost card um, in the location is not too prohibitive that this card will not see play. So this this is the one that's the most interesting to me. Awesome. Tori, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. You're a great guest, very articulate, very, very smart. It was awesome to hear your thoughts on the mental game of Snap uh, specifically. That's that's such an important topic to the game and such a hard topic to talk about uh, because it can be so you know, ephemeral, I guess. Like it is it is just hard to distill into words. And I think you did a really, really good job of uh, of enlightening us and the listeners about how um, you are so good at this game, how you have achieved rank one. So we really appreciate you coming on uh, and uh, and sharing that with us. I just want to give you a chance to shout out um, where people can find you, what you're up to, literally anything you want to. Yeah. Um, so um, Torikun um, on in in game, um, Torikun snaps on all the socials. That's um, Twitter, uh, an inactive Twitch, but. Never say never. Um, the thing you want to watch out for me 
in the um incoming um future is the Snapfan World Championship. Like um we've been hosting um Snapfan um world championship events like Battle Arena, the Snapfan Open, Snap Clash events for the better part of last year for a decent like six months or so. And I'm pleased to announce that we're we're finally gonna get we're gonna have all of the um players who rightfully qualified, we're gonna give them a chance to play. I'll be there as well. I've qualified as well last year. Um and that will be held on March nine and ten. Um keep that weekend um open for the next big competitive event in Snap. If you win the tournament, will you make a promise, a covenant per se, now to come back onto the podcast and explain how you did it? <laughs> that is going to be an incredibly difficult feat, but Oh sure. no, 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 no. I don't want to hear that. Yeah. I want to hear a promise. Story. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a promise. Lock it in. Is that a yes, Tori? Is that a yes? We, yeah. Well, I have to win the tournament first, but I will show up. <laughs> I, I've loved being on here. Like the podcast is great, and it's incredibly awesome to just talk with some like-minded people who have just or just incredibly passionate about the game. Like, yeah. Well, thanks I, so much, Tori. This, I, I, this is a great first podcast for me. <laughs> I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, if you all enjoyed it, all of you listening and watching on YouTube, the number one thing you can do for us is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Wherever you're listening, we do read every review, and it is the most impactful thing you can do and to help us be successful. There's a video version of this on YouTube at youtube.com slash at the underscore snapshot. Hit that subscribe while you're there. Twitter's our Brennan APG, Tori Can Snaps, and Cam Best MS. Cam is streaming in the like right after this right after this in the evenings yeah. <laughs> sometimes the late yeah. evenings if he loses sometimes a lot. late e- late evenings i'm gonna lose a lot it's yeah. happening yeah if it's late evening it's uh, not a good sign but you know late evenings bad signs <laughs> all bad signs the worst signs thank you all so much for listening we'll see you next week